two hours every weekday, covering everything from Torah, Parsha, holidays, and so much more. This is 101.9 High FM, Soul to Soul. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Soul to Soul. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kivman, and today, Yom Hazikaron, Day of Holocaust Remembrance, I would like to share with you some ideas of things that were discussed. Now, many people are on their presently at the cemetery to commemorate the Shoah. And on my way to the cemetery for this very special remembrance, 73 years since the deliverance, since the rescue of the Jews, of so many of our brothers and sisters who suffered and personal relatives of my own, whose lives were lost during the Holocaust. And I think as important as it is for us to hear the stories of survivors, the few few that are left, my own father being one of them, growing up a little bit away from the scene in Russia, but right there. And after the war being in a DP camp in Bergen-Belsen, it is something that is very personal and relevant to my life. And on my way to the cemetery this afternoon, I was having a discussion with somebody about this event and about free choice and about the people who did survive. And I think we ought to think a little bit about that and perhaps to discuss that idea. And when I was giving it some thought, I looked at the Torah portion. We're going to read this Shabbos and Shul, the portion of Shemini in which we address the laws of Tuma and Tahara, of ritual impurity and purity. And it's right at the end of this week's portion in Shavi, the seventh Aliyah. And it's actually, it was a major part of Jewish life, if you think about in years bygone, in the times of our temple, in biblical times, in the times that our sanctuary tabernacle existed. Today, many of us view these laws as archaic, as outdated. But the truth is, we have to appreciate that for our ancestors living as they did 1,900 years ago in temple times. This was part of the fabric of their daily living. I mean, it's like our iPhone is to us today. We're filling up our car with petrol. And we can appreciate Jewish history and scholarship and these concepts and ideas of the Torah if we don't understand the laws of purity and impurity as it's explained in the Torah portion and as it's elucidated in the Talmud. Because as I've oftentimes said, We cannot see the Torah, Bible, as just bibliography, as his story, his story. But rather, it's got to be our story. We've got to find its relevance in our lives. And perhaps the message and lesson for us on this day. And so I thought of one particular element, the klicheres that we have at the opening of the seventh reading this week. And on a practical and psychological level, we could perhaps examine it and find its practical implication, its relevance in our lives today. And the truth is, if you look in the Talmud on the laws and how it's explained, and I try to give give you a glimpse of that, the Torah tells us that most utensils become spiritually impure by coming in contact with a source of impurity. So, for example, uh, the corpse of a human being or the carcass of an impure animal, that will make these vessels ritually impure. Now, for example, if you have a silver menorah, a golden knife, a metal fork, 
whatever it is, and a dead weasel fell on any of them, or any of them fell on the human corpse or whatever it is that it comes in contact with as a source of impurity, what happens is it requires now a spiritual cleansing, which is usually done in a mikvah, a pool of natural rain or spring water. And as long as it's not cleansed, in those days, any food or drink that's placed on them would become ritually impure. And so you can't place on these vessels any sacred food that has to remain pure. Something like turuma or the food of temple sacrifices were not allowed to be brought, were not allowed to be served on these utensils. Now here's where I need you to halt cup, to put on your thinking cap and to join me in a little bit of a journey. You see, how about an earthen utensil? This is what the Torah portion here calls a klicheres, a vessel made out of clay. Now very simply, you take earth, you mix it with water, straw, you mold it into a particular shape, and then bake it under the sun or in a, or in a furnace. And this is what we call a klicheres. This is a earthenware vessel that's described in this week's Torah portion. And it becomes impure only if the source of impurity actually enters its inside. So let's read it in the verse. It says, An earthen utensil, which something impure falls into its inside. Then the verse continues, Yitma, it becomes impure, the and we discuss what has to be done with it. So here, what's interesting is that the Torah law differentiates between an earthen utensil and utensils made out of any other materials. Other utensils, whether it's metal or wood, gold, silver, whatever it is, becomes impure through contact of an impure object. That means if the outside of this vessel or if the impure animal touches any part of the utensil, externally, and how much more so internally, then it becomes impure. But an earthenware vessel, a klicheres, an earthen utensil, only becomes impure if the source of impurity enters into its very inside, inside that cavity. So if you have an earthenware jar, and a dead mouse falls into it, into the cavity, into the open jar... That's when it becomes impure. But if it touches its outside surface, well, not a problem. It remains pure. Now, what if the earthenware utensil has no inside? Good question, right? For example, let's say you got an earthenware fork or a bed or a bench or a table or a flat plate, whatever you could think of that has no actual inside. It could actually not become impure. It is not susceptible to these laws of impurity. For it can only become impure if the impurity actually enters into its very inside. But these events, these types of utensils, like a fork, there's actually no inside. So if you take an earthenware cup, a goblet, a bowl, a jug, a jar, they become impure, but not a plate, which has no particular inside. Conversely, if you look at a metal fork or table or golden chair or a silver flat counter, those actually would become impure. So the law is quite fascinating and interesting. 
Now, in order to understand this law, why is there a distinction between an earthenware vessel and all the other utensils? The answer is actually quite fascinating, and it's an explanation I want to share with you from the Shemesh Shmuel. And he says that because a vessel, for a vessel to become impure, it actually needs to have some utility. It needs to be functional. It has to have value. It needs to be usable to a human being. Whatever has no value to a human being actually is immune to impurity. Now, because the forces of Tuma, of impurity, are only attracted to something of an elevated spiritual potential, and so they only something that has a value to a human being actually is susceptible to this spiritual impurity. Now, the value of a utensil, say of wood or of metal, is not only the fact that it can contain something, that it becomes a vessel, but the material itself is worth something. So contact with any part of it. Let's go expensive. You have an 18-carat gold plate, right? It's a value, not just as a plate. In fact, the gold is a much greater value than its plate value because you could use a piece of some kind of disposable plate. So the plate value doesn't compare to the actual value of its material, that it's made of gold. So if you think of the value, the inherent value it has, look at an earthenware utensil. Unless it's made, fashioned by some fancy designer, it's actually extremely cheap because what is China made from? It's made out of mud. On its own, it has virtually no value. Its only value is that it has been it has been fashioned into a container and it could be used to store things or for the purpose of whatever you fashioned it into. So it's affected only by what happens to its actual inside because that's what gives it human value. It's the cavity, the open space in it that holds things which makes it of any purpose, of any meaning, not the outside surface. And so only when the impure source actually enters into that space does it become impure. Now, every law in Judaism, as we know, is not to just be understood on its physical, concrete level, but also from a psychological and a spiritual perspective. And so I want to share with you something really powerful because the human being we know is essentially compared to an earthenware vessel. We know if you look at the verse in the Torah, how did God fashion man? Offer mehadama, right? God formed man from the dust of the earth, vayipach biap of nishmas chayim, and God blew into his nostrils a spirit of life. If you recall the prayers that we recite on the high holidays, on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, we say these moving words. Adam, Yisoyidai, May offer the soy foil offer. Benafsha yovilachmoi, Moshu kicheresanishbor. We'll leave it for your chazan, for your favorite preferred cantor to sing the remainder of that. But the meaning of those words loosely is that. Man comes from the dust, and our destiny is to return back to the dust. And we describe at risk, risk of our life, we try to earn a living. And then we say, Man 
is compared, is likened to a earthenware vessel. Now, if you continue the song, it's actually quite meaningful. But we have to understand, what is the comparison of a human being to an earthenware vessel? And to understand why or how we, as human beings, could be compared to the vessel. And that's what I'd like to discuss with you now. Because there are two ways we could see our life. And we could see this by comparing ourselves to an earthenware vessel. Think of an earthenware vessel which has, so to say, what's called a klikibel, in which it holds something. Think of a car, of a, of a, of a cup, of a jar, of, of a jug. And then you have one that's a clay vessel without any inside, where things can be placed on top of it, but not inside of it. Think of the fork. Think of the scissor. Think of a table. Spiritually, these two vessels represent two visions of our human life. One is, how much could I contain? It's all about me. What could I get out of life? The purpose of my life is as much as I could acquire, as much as I could stuff my face, empty insides, let's see how much I could fill myself with. But then there is another type, another vision for life. And that one is, I am a channel for God. As the Mishnah put it, puts it, Ani my purpose, I was created to serve my master. Life is not about just filling my voids. What can I get about it? It's about fulfilling my mission for which God sent me to this world. I don't just ask what God could do for me, but what can I do for God? I don't just ask what life could do for me, but what I can do for life. I ask not what others can do for me, but what could I do for others. And if you think I'm paraphrasing John F. Kennedy, you're wrong. Because long before JFK, Rabbi Schneer Zaman of Liadi, the Alter Rebbe, said these words. When a particular chassid was lamenting and complaining about his problems, the Rebbe said to him, you seem to only be worried about what others owe you. But have you ever given thought to what you should be doing for God, to what you should be doing for others? You seem to only be worried about what you need, but have you ever given thought to what you're needed for? And the truth is, if we think about this, we might think that, yeah, I am a consumer in life. I have to think about what's in it for me. It's a dog-eats-dog world. What could I get out of things? But the truth is, in such a, from such a perspective, I think we're far more vulnerable to distress, to despair, to impurity. Because when it's all about me and about how much I could get out of life, then I'm vulnerable to all forms of frustration, of sadness, of corruption. But if I think about life, about what I could do for others, then I'm not as contaminated. I feel a little bit my situation could ease as an ambassador of God in this world, as a channel for God's light, as a conduit for divine energy. Then I think of myself as a mirror of God's truth. So when we're back, I'd like to talk about how do we know which, when our, when our life is healthier, how do we know which is the preferred way we should be living our lifestyle? Two hours.
Hours every weekday, covering everything from Torah, Parsha, holidays, and so much more. This is 101.9 High FM, Soul to Soul. Welcome back to Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Ari Kivman, and we are talking today, Yom Hazikaron, Holocaust Remembrance Day. We're discussing a purpose of life how to live our lives purposefully, and discussing an element in this week's Torah portion, the concept of our comparison to a clay vessel. And we asked before, how do you know when your body's healthy? And the truth is, when you don't feel it, when you start to feel any part of your body, even if you don't feel pain, but just a sense of heaviness, I think that's a sign that something in the body is a little bit dysfunctional. Right? The healthier the body is, the less you sense it. When we don't feel our body, we don't actually, we're actually healthier. After a good workout, our, actual, our body actually feels lighter, not heavy. You just don't feel it because it's full of light. But when we just finish eating a pie of pizza or a meat pie or a rib steak or whatever it is, then you feel your body. It becomes a heavy burden because it's not in sync with its own energy. And the same is true with our soul. The less we feel ourself, the more we experience ourselves as a channel for God and the happier we are. So instead of searching your whole life for what you need, like we said, search for what we're needed for. Find a mission, a purpose which transcends ourselves, devote ourselves to something more meaningful. People ask me how I got involved with senior citizens, how I've become... Joburg Senior's rabbi. And I did that prior to that in New York. I was the rabbi at several retirement homes. I became New York's senior rabbi. How did I get to that? And the answer is very simple, actually. It started when I was a teenager. And I used to take a stroll on the long summer Shabbos afternoons with my friends to Prospect Park or to the Botanical Gardens. And it was nice to take a walk, a stroll with my friends to those places, good scenery, socializing, networking. But my mother once asked me if I thought that was the best thing for me to be doing on a Shabbos afternoon. Why don't I take a walk to a destination, to something with more purpose and meaning? And she recommended we go to the hospital, a Methodist hospital nearby. In fact, at the hospital, there were many elderly patients. And why don't I visit those patients and bring some warmth and light of Shabbos to them? And indeed, that's what I started to do. Not all my friends joined, but with some of my friends, we would go on a Shabbos afternoon, same stroll along beautiful boulevard or the Eastern Parkway and along the gardens. But instead of just going to the gardens and socializing and just strolling, we would actually have a purpose for this walk. There was a destination. We would meet elderly people. And that is where I started actually getting involved with geriatric community. In fact, I gained so much from it. It brought me out of my shell. I used to be a very shy kid. This was one of the things that actually helped me get out of that shyness. And if I think about that, when we find purpose in our life, then there's something more that we can live toward. So if we forget about ourselves, I just want to walk on Shabbos afternoon. All of a sudden, we have another purpose and we devote ourselves to that greater cause, to a real cause then actually we reach a certain genuine, unself-conscious bliss. Because our life actually becomes a reflection 
of our true essence. We feel that there's some purpose, some meaning to what we're doing. And today, it's very interesting that on this day, we commemorate the Holocaust because there were two events that happened today, 57 years ago. And I wonder if you know what I'm referring to. Two events that attracted world headlines and attention in their time, actually yesterday, 57 years ago. Exactly the same day in April, in the same year, in 1961. The first event was a flight into deep space by Russian astronaut Major Yuri Gagarin. He was a Russian-Soviet pilot, pilot, a, a, we call him an American astronaut, but the Russians like to call him a cosmonaut or a cosmonaut. I'm not sure what they call him. But he was the first human to journey into outer space. And when his Vostok spacecraft completed an orbit of the Earth on the 11th of April, actually today as well, so today is the anniversary 57 years ago on the 12th of April, 1961. The second event I want to contrast this with was the opening of the trial of Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem, also yesterday in 1961. Now these two incidents, of course, weren't related to each other in any way. Gagarin and Eichmann were separated by barriers of age, of training, philosophy, the national origin. But the truth is, these two events that occurred at the same time symbolize in the most extreme fashion the two sides of the human person that we discussed. You see, Gagarin, by his flight that put him into outer space, he took man on a giant step into the limitless heavens. We know that eight years later, when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, what did he say? One step for man. One giant leap for mankind. And so began an era of space exploration, in which year after year, we discover the infinite wisdom of God reflected in the infinite grandeur of this universe. And today, even Virgin Galactic is offering, I remember hearing here on Chai FM, the commercial for a chance for a flight into outer space. Eichmann, on the other hand, he represented man's capability of descending to the lowest depths of depravity. His career as the architect of the final solution Sending millions to their deaths with precision, with skill, with that German efficiency just shows us how man can hate with viciousness and a spite that is unequaled by any other creature on earth. And it's difficult to believe that these two men belong to the very same race. They're essentially the same blood, the same tissue. And if we didn't know about his murderous work, anyone could have taken Eichmann for either an ordinary laborer, a teacher, a medical technician. He was capable of exterminating millions with efficiency, with diligence, dispatch. He had no feelings of guilt or remorse for the endless torture that he planned and perpetrated on innocent men, women, and children who've done nothing wrong. Their only crime is being Jewish. You know that moments before he was hanged in Israel, he declared that he was a proud German 
And he was proud of all he did in the service of Hitler. It's hard for us to conceive how cruel some humans could be. They look just like us, smile like us, eat like us, drink like us, sing like us, sleep like us. Such cruelty. But this is the story of human nature. We are, as the Torah portion describes this week, we are like the earthenware vessels. We are Adam. From the word Adama, we could be like the dust of the earth. But Adam, we know, also means not just Adama, the earth, but Adam Le'elion, we are similar to the divine. We reflect heaven. We are created in God's image. And we have to choose which Adam we want to become. We could be brute and selfish, or we could reflect the divine. Every human being has a demon lurking within. We all have it. And if you don't challenge and tame it every day, then it could become our monster. We're capable of ugliness and depravity, every one of us is. But we're also capable of incredible greatness. The soul of man, as the words of Tanya tell us, is is literally a fragment, a piece of God. And so we're capable of generating infinite goodness, of encountering so much goodness, bringing kindness into the world, of bringing the divine vision. We could be one or the other. And it's because of our being dust that we could be forgiven. It's because of us being in God's image that actually a much higher expectation is expected of us. And so together, the image, being created in God's image, and the dust of the earth express that polarity of our nature. We're formed of the most inferior stuff and in the most superior image at the same exact time. So either we could see ourselves as a clay vessel here, just to serve ourselves, or we could see ourselves as a clay vessel whose entire identity is a reflection of God's light. And truth be told, sometimes we're this one, sometimes we're the other one. Hopefully never, ever to any of the extremes that we discussed that we commemorate today. But this brings to the big question. And it's in this question and answer that the future of humanity actually, I think, hangs. Does our submission to God mean obliteration of ourselves? Does this vision of life mean that I have to tell ourselves I'm nothing, I'm a shmata, I'm worthless? My entire value is that I work for God, I have no inside, no sense of an inner self. All I am is God's vehicle. Is that even healthy? Is that not inconsistent with human nature, with who we are? Is this really ideal to just tell ourselves what a nothing I am? Am I just a channel? Does Judaism in its deepest calling ask of me to obliterate my very sense of self for the sake of God? Is this really what God wants? And is that even attainable by any human individual? And the truth is, if we think of the earthenware vessel, even if an earthenware utensil has an inside, the halacha says, if it wasn't constructed for the purpose of just containing things for itself, 
then actually that too cannot become impure. And I want to use this example. Take, for example, a water pipe. It has an inside, right? But its purpose is to transfer water from one location to another. And so such a vessel actually can never become impure. Unlike the cup or jar, which is made just to contain things inside of them. The pipe is made to transfer, to give to the other, and therefore it's immune from impurity. And I think this this really reflects an important and profound truth that this day reminds me of. That yes, God created us with insides, and yes, we ought to fill them up. We all need things, and please God, they'll be, come to us in abundance, materially and spiritually. But God wants us to be aware of our virtues, our positive qualities, our unique qualities of our personality to utilize them in a successful, purposeful, meaningful way. God wants us to realize the greatness in each of us, the enormous potential and blessing that we each possess. And so the question is not if we have an inside, but why we have an inside. Why was it created? What is its purpose? What do we do with it? Is it... If it's made just for myself, then of course I'm susceptible to impurity. But if we view our insides, the depth of our personalities that fills us as an opportunity to serve God and to serve mankind and to be living a meaningful, purposeful life in this world, then we can actually never become impure. When we see ourselves as impure, it's only from our perspective because we were all created to serve God God put us in this world to express God's light into the world, to be shining lights, to be lamplighters. And from that perspective, to God, none of us could become impure. We're all a channel for the divine. The thing is that sometimes we think of ourselves as separated. Sometimes we see, we feel detached. But when we become cognizant that we're really here for a purpose, to serve God and to serve God kind, then we can never become impure. We'll never be impure. We're not capable of becoming impure. God formed our vessel in a fashion and with a purpose that's completely and absolutely one with God. Our entire identity, our entire life, our entire persona, our psyche is created for that purpose. And so our entire reality, our entire function is to be shining lights into this world. And that's why we begin our mornings with a very powerful, beautiful prayer. We turn to God and say, the soul you imbued in me is pure, it's divine light. Atta Varasa, you created Atta Yitzarta, you formed it. Atta Nafachta, you blew it into me. The Atta Neshama Bekirbi, and you guarded in me. And what we're saying is, that my core, my essence, who I am, is truly divine. It's pure godliness. Even when I'm in a state where it seems like I'm a little bit down, maybe I have fallen a bit. The truth is, it always remains one with God. We're not corruptible. I want to share with you a beautiful story that happened to that happened actually in the Dachau concentration camp. And when we're back, I'll share with you this powerful story. 
Two hours every weekday, covering everything from Torah, Parsha, holidays, and so much more. This is 101.9 High FM, Soul to Soul. Welcome back to Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Ari Kiedman. It's great being with you this afternoon. For some reason, always on a Yom Azikaron, I find that it's always overcast, cloudy. It's as if God is crying with us on this day for the loss of so many Jews who were mercilessly murdered in the Holocaust. I want to share with you a story now from Rabbi Yosef Wallace, who lives today in Israel. And he wrote this story in a Chabad publication called Sichot HaShavua. He published this story describing one of his father's incidents in Dachau. He said that when his father once saw a Jew was being taken to his death, suddenly this man just threw a bag at his father. His father was Judah Wallace. His father caught the bag thinking maybe there's some food, some bread, something for him to eat. But when he opened it, he actually discovered a pair of tefillin, of phylacteries inside. And so Judah was very frightened because he knew that if he were caught carrying tefillin, He'd be put to death instantly. So he hid the tefillin under his shirt and he headed to his bunkhouse. In the morning, just before the roll call, while he was still in the barracks, he would actually put on the tefillin. And the truth is, he wouldn't just do it himself. He shared it with many of his fellow inmates in Dacha concentration camp. One morning, Rabbi Wallace describes unexpectedly a German Nazi officer appeared right there in his barrack, saw his father in the tefillin, and ordered him to remove the tefillin and examined his arm, noted the number that was tattooed there, and instructed him to go straight to the roll call. At the roll call in front of thousands of fellow silent Jews, this Nazi officer called out Judah's number and of course, without choice, he had to step forward. And the German officer waved the tefillin in the ear in front of all the other inmates in the camp and began screaming and shouting at him. He says, Hunt, I sentence you to death by public hanging for wearing these religious articles. So Judah was placed there on a stool and a noose was placed around his neck. And before he was hanged, the officer said in a very mocking tone, Hunt, you dog! What's your last wish? And so Judah, without skipping a heart's beat, he said, I want to wear my tefillin just one last time. This SS officer was dumbfounded. He handed Judah the tefillin. And as Mr. Wallace put them on, he recited the incredibly moving verse from the prophet Hosea that we that many Jews say every morning while winding the tefillin around their arm, around their fingers. The Eras Tichli the Oilam, the Eras Tichli Betzedek of a Mishpat, the Bechesed of a Rachamim, the Eras Tichli Be'emuna, the Yodat es Hashem. I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me with righteousness and with justice and with kindness and with mercy, and I'll betroth you to me with loyalty. And you shall know God. In silence, the entire camp, everyone, all his fellow inmates looked on 
at the Jew with a noose around his neck and tefillin on his head and arm, awaiting his death for his crime of observing this mitzvah. Even the woman from the adjoining camp were lined up at the barbed wire fences that separated them from the men's camp. All of them were standing there watching this ominous sight. And as Judah turned to the silent crowd, he saw tears in so many people's eyes. And even at that moment, as he was about to be hanged, as they were going to kick that stool, he was so shocked. Jews were crying. How is it possible? They even had tears left to shed. And for a stranger who even knew him, he wasn't some popular guy. And he said, where those tears, where were they coming from? So he cried out in Yiddish. He said, Yidim, Danish, don't cry. With these tefillin on, he says, I am the victor. Don't you understand? Victory is ours. And the German officer obviously understood Yiddish, which is a combination of German and other Eastern European languages, along, of course, with our Hebrew. He said to Judah, Hunt, you dog, you think you're the victor? Ah, hanging is too good of a punishment for you. You're going to get another kind of death. And so Judah was taken from the stool and the noose was removed from his neck. He was forced into a squatting position and two large rocks were placed under his armpits. And he was told that he would be getting 25 lashes to his head. The head in which he dared to place those to fill in. And the officer told him that if he dropped even one of those rocks from his armpits, He'd be shot immediately. In fact, because this was such an extremely painful form of death, the officer advised him, you could just drop those rocks now. You'll never survive 25 lashes to your head. Nobody ever does. And so Judah said, no, I'm not going to give you that pleasure. Go ahead, lash me. And so one lashing after another, at 25 lashes, he lost consciousness fell to the ground, he was left for dead. And he was about to be dragged to a pile of corpses, burned in the ditch as the rest of the Jews who were dead there were. But a fellow Jew noticed that there was still some life. And he shoved him to the side, covered his head with a rag so people wouldn't realize he was actually potentially, possibly still alive. And eventually after he recovered some consciousness, he crawled to the nearest bunkhouse that was raised on piles, and he hid underneath it until he regained more strength and he was able to come out. Less than two months later, on the 29th of April in 1945, the U.S. 7th Army's 45th Infantry Division liberated Dachau, and Judah Wallace was freed. During the hanging and beating episode of Judah and his tefillin there, there was a 17-year-old girl who had been watching him from the women's side of the fence. And after the liberation, she made her way to the men's camp. She found him. And she walked him and she said she lost everyone in her family. She doesn't want to be alone in this world. And she asked Judah if Judah would marry her. Judah, losing his own family as well, he said yes. 
And so they turned to Rabbi Ikosiel Yehuda Halberstam, the Klosenberger Rebbe, who himself lost his wife and 11 children in Auschwitz. And they requested that he perform their marriage ceremony. Klosenberger Rebbe wrote out a ksuba. And the young couple were wed right then and there after Israel's establishment made Aliyah. And Rabbi Joseph Wallace concludes his article in the Sichot HaShavua that I, Rabbi Yosef Wallace, their son, keep and cherish that Ksuba to this very day. He says, I was born from that marriage. But the story is not over, my friends, because sometime after the story was published, an elderly man named Mr. Lasky, who would receive the Sichot HaShavua from the Chabad students who give it out every week, he actually read the story and couldn't believe his eyes. He called Chabad in Israel and he asked for the number from Rabbi Wallace who wrote the story. He said to them that I, this Mr. Lasky, was in Dachau together with Mr. Wallace and he saw the beating and he never knew that Judah ever survived that beating. And he said, I always wanted to thank him for letting me to put on, allowing me to put on his tefillin in Dachau. And at least now I could thank his son. And after the phone call, Rabbi Wallace went to visit Mr. Lasky and he thanked him. Mr. Lasky thanked Rabbi Wallace for his father allowing him to put on the tefillin. He said, I have one complaint, is that your father always rushed me to finish and to take off the tefillin. I said, for good reason, because had I been the one caught, I don't think I'd have survived as he did. And Rabbi Wallace said, until now, I never found anyone to validate my father's story. I just accepted it. But now that I have an eyewitness, the circle of history has come full circle. And you think about this story of the Jewish earthenware vessel that remains beyond any form of impurity. It's the story of the Adam who in the midst of the abyss remained connected to the highest of heavens. We are called Adaman, but we could either be Adama, we could act narcissistic, self-centered, we could be like the dust of the earth. Or we could live up to our calling of being divine. You think about how many Holocaust survivors actually attribute their life to sharing a thin cloth blanket with others. Some felt it's a little thin cloth blanket. I may as well use it for myself, but they gave one blanket for six inmates. But those who came closer together, and even though they were emaciated and skeletoned by sharing that blanket... They were able to actually save each other's lives with a little bit of body heat that they were able to generate. My friends, on this Yom Azikaron, we can't just think about the past, but we have to think about our future. We just came from Pesach. And one interesting interpretation I saw in the Haggadah, we read, the beginning of the Haggadah, we read that an embarrassing episode. At first, our ancestors were idol worshippers. And one of the beautiful commentators explains that if we just look in the past, Mitchila, those were the days, my friends, we thought they never end. Can't just look back in the past. We gotta think about our present. We gotta think about what do we do for our future and for our present? How do we live our lives today? So don't just say Mitchila, ooh, we could live just in the past. Uh uh uh. Someone who lives in the past is in a state of mitchila. It's some degree of idolatry. We have to see achshav kervanu 
We come closer to Hashem by saying, what could we do now? How will we ensure that we don't forget? What are we giving to our children for their future? That is the life we ought to live today. And I think this is the story of our life. We have to be looking at what are we doing today? How are we ensuring a Jewish future? How are we going to prevent another Holocaust from happening? Because if we look around the world around us today, we know there are all types of threats standing before us. But if we could just live our life in a way of ensuring that our children have a proper Jewish education, that there's a future generation who will live as proud Jews just as we, as, just as we have survived to this day, then we are coming closer to the future era of ensuring that no, we won't get stuck in the past, but we will build a much greater future. My dear friends, on this Yom Zikaron, I wish that we reflect on the past of those who we've lost, those who've perished, not just in the terrors, the horrors of the Holocaust, but in so many other pogroms throughout history and inquisitions and, and crusades and other, other terrible events where so many have lost their lives but also to look forward to a much brighter and greater future that is up to us. And speaking of a past and future, I invite you to join me here next Thursday between 1 and 2 p.m. when I will be interviewing right here live on this show Rabbi Tzadok Sushard who is going to share with us glimpses into his past 40 six years of dedicated commitment and service to the Santon community. And he's going to give us a glimpse into the history of what life was like growing up in Johannesburg in his time and the start of the wonderful congregation of Santon Shul and the Beis HaMadrush HaGadol, as well as future plans and how we could have a much brighter, greater future until we're blessed with the coming of Mashiach, hopefully speedily in our days. Stay tuned for Fresh Thinking Up Next with Rabbi Ari Shishler, and thank you for joining me here today. Wish you all a meaningful, purposeful Shabbos and good times ahead. Carpe diem!